Do you have an idea for a podcast, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you're overwhelmed by all the tech or you're convinced nobody will actually listen to you. Well, I'm Shauna Game. After nine and a half years as a professional podcaster, at this show, everyone's talking money. And 25 million downloads later, let me tell you the secret to a profitable podcast. It is building a solid foundation, your podcast roadmap before you launch. That's why I created the Podcaster Class, a fast-paced group cohort podcasting for profit eight-week style NBA program. The Podcaster Class is immersive, comprehensive, and insanely motivational. If you want to create a podcast, DIYing a launch is just not the way to go. In the Podcaster Class, you'll get the tools, tips, and strategies to create a podcast that resonates with listeners and one you can be proud of. Get this. 90% of podcasters never make it to episode three. That's 2.8 million podcasters who just quit. So to be a top podcaster, you only need to publish 21 episodes, but you got to make them good. So in the podcaster class, I'm taking the mystery out of how to create, launch, and profit from your podcast so you can create a top 1% podcast just like this one. The May cohort is now open for enrollment. Classes start May 22nd. There are only 15 spots open. You are going to learn podcasting with me and 14 other amazing people. You can learn all the details at thepodcasterclass.com. Use code podcast when you sign up for $100 off. That's thepodcasterclass.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I was paying for vacations all wrong. (laughs) I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? I don't know, maybe that fancy hotel upgrade that you have always been dreaming about. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hey, I'm Shauna Compton-Game. This is Millennial Money, and today we have a Millennial Music Chat with Alex Clare. Millennial Money with Shauna Compton Game. It will expand your brain. Hey there, this week we have a very special singer songwriter we're going to talk with this week on the podcast. Would you change your job, your career, or even the place you've always called home for your faith? Well, that's exactly what soulful singer-songwriter Alex Clare has established in his career. After converting to Orthodox Judaism a few years back, Clare brought his faith to his current home of Israel. Yet, he still continues to have this growing fan base with each new album and tour. And uh, a few years back, it wasn't so great for him. He, in his career, uh, Claire actually was dropped from his first record label, the legendary Island Records, who discovered U2 and Bob Marley. It was due to a demanding promotional and tour schedule that conflicted with his Jewish holidays. 
Now, Ox Claire is back with a stellar new album and an upcoming North American tour that launches in November. So join us for this very special conversation with singer-songwriter Alex Clare as we talked about his new album, Tale of Lions, which is a really great album, uh, writing and recording this album on a boat in Israel, and the state of racism in the world uh, these days. Uh, we actually spoke with Alex a few months ago, and it was only days after the Charlottesville riots that occurred. Um, and he gives us his take and experience with racism in his own life. You know I'm not one to break promises. Oh man, it's um, yeah, it's, it's scary, man. And it, you know, people say like it's just reimagining, but the thing is, I don't think it ever really went away. I think it's like attitudes have always been there, bubbling away behind the surface, and um, it didn't take a lot to reactivate them. Right. You know. Right. Um, right. And what well, scary, you know? Yeah. Um, as, 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 as a Jewish person, every documentary I've seen of these, you know, on, on both sides, people are shouting. <laughs> Jews, especially on the right, more right. so. I mean, it's, it's, right. really, it's really, really uh, scary that um, these people hold such antiquated and such negative false opinions of uh, anyone who's not, you know, the same as them. Right. And it's, uh, it's, it's terrifying. But right. these things come and go, and we have to be aware of it, and we, you know, fear doesn't do anything. Um, anger doesn't do anything. We need to talk to each other, and we need to... Um, you know, have some kind of mediation. Um, when people see the difference in, in another person, whether it's a political opinion or whether it's an ethnic or racial opinion, um, they automatically become, you know, protective of themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's easy when someone is different than yourself to um, put your guards up mm -hmm. and assume that that other is so vastly different that they're going to affect or change your way of life. And I'm talking about both sides here. This goes to the right and to the left. Sure. Um, people have to listen to each other and understand each other and not just go into these crazy, like, diatribes of rhetoric where they just turn out the same, same nonsense. And people have to listen to each other um, and validate each other. And, um, you know, the moment someone starts feeling that they're right or they have more of a right to be validated than someone else, I mean, that's, you can't be talked to those people, admittedly. But there has to be some kind of way to uh, to mediate and make some kind some kind of level of peace. I, mean, right. I hope, I really hope, because it's um, scary, you know, scary, and uh, this is the world we're living in now. Um, you know, I, I live in a place where um, you know, again, people are very polarised, mm -hmm. um, um, culturally speaking and on both sides. And uh, the one thing we know in this part of the world is that, you know, um, conversation is so important and interaction and interface is so vital. Um, the question is, if someone hates you, 
for like no rational reason whatsoever, or for a reason that they think is perfectly rational, which is even scarier. And then how do you then, how do you then, you know, communicate with that person? That's the challenge. Um, I was at a music festival in Europe a few days, a few last week, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I never experienced this in my life. But I was walking through the festival. And someone they asked me, he said, where are you from? And I said, well, that's a good question. I'm from hundreds of different places. <laughs> yeah. You know, my mum my mom was born in East Africa. My dad was born in London. Um, I was born in London and I live in Israel. So like, um, I said, I'm on lots of different places. He said, oh, you live in Israel, so you're a Jew. And I said, yeah, I'm a Jew. And he said, oh, I don't like Jews. Mm. So I said mm. to the white middle class Dutch kid, you know, the most liberal culture and society in the world. And I said mm-hmm. to this kid, like, um, what do you mean? And he said, oh, you're okay, but I don't like Jews. So I said to him, what does that mean? And I said, would you use, would you use an N-word or would you use uh, another racist, a racist mm-hmm. derogatory expression to, to you know, describe how you view somebody? And he said, of course not. So I said, why on earth would you think it's okay to say something like that? And he said, well, I don't. And uh, so he tried, to get, he tried to touch me, he tried to put his hand around me and like, you know, hug me and tell me, it's okay. And I was like, no, don't touch me. Right. Get away from me. <laughs> but on reflection, what I wish I would have said is, like, I wish I'd have spoken to him more. Mm-hmm. Instead, I was like, um, get away from me, you horrible yeah. bigot. Right. You know? And, um, and I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish I'd stopped for a second and just been like, okay, can we talk about this? Like, <laughs> I want to understand, like, why you feel that way. Right. Because you never met a Jew before. Right. <laughs> so, right, right, right. So this is, the world, this is a white liberal, you know, middle class guy from Holland, the most, you know, sure liberal country in the world. <laughs> right, the most right. liberal values, and uh, it's not this expression to say, "Oh yeah, I don't, I don't like you," which is incredible, right. incredible. But um, this is the world we live in. People, you know, whatever. We need to, we need to have dialogue and understanding and. Um, you know, talk about our differences and hopefully see the advantages in our differences, you know, and accept them as uh, beautiful things, not as just strange cultural and idiosyncrasies. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Well, you guys actually made, so you, you mentioned before you were from London and you actually moved to, to Israel or to Jerusalem a, a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. Um, why did you guys, why did you guys feel like you kind of wanted to make that move? Um, I spent a lot of time here in my life. Uh-huh. Especially in the last 10 years or so, I've been coming here a lot. Um, I got married here. I went to school here. Um, I'm Jewish. <laughs> you know, it's a very special yeah. place for us. Yeah, yeah. And um, I just wanted to spend more time here. I wanted my kids to learn Hebrew properly. Mm-hmm. I wanted my kids to understand the culture a lot better. And it just seemed like a good thing to do. So right, right. And, yeah, and, right. and you actually converted to Judaism not... Fairly too long ago, because you weren't born and raised that way, right? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. It, I, I, it was more a, um, a reversion of social conversion. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't come from a religious. I don't come from a religious family. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, we also had a very strong Jewish identity. It just wasn't. Uh, it just wasn't religious. You know, there's a right. religious Jewish identity and a secular Jewish identity. I became more. Uh, became more religious. Right. 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 Well, I also think too that you you have a, such a fascinating story, and I think and now you're kind of putting that more into music on on your last album too. Um, but tell sure. us a little bit about your journey. Um, I, mean, I think it's totally fascinating, and I, I was totally fascinated when I was like reading some clips and and watching some clips of you about your your deal with Island Records, just starting kind of out of the oh, business, yeah. 
you know, Island Record to sign, yeah. you know, U2 and Bob Marley and whatever, and then you kind of had a deal, but, but because of your faith and everything, and I think anybody can relate this to, to your job if you're of any faith or whatever, you know, that you kind of have some things snag that record deal. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, I became, um, just before I signed my record deal, I became a lot more observant. Um, you know, around the same time that I was making the demos for my first album, I was becoming a lot more observant. I was keeping um, Shabbat, keeping the Sabbath, I was keeping kosher. When I signed my first deal, I told my record label that I was, I, I didn't work on Friday nights and Saturdays, and the only reference they could think of was Walker from The Big Lebowski. They were like, oh, you don't roll on Shabbos. And I was like, no, I do not roll on Shabbos. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and they were like, that. okay, so they kind of, they didn't really understand what that meant. They didn't really understand the severity of what, you know, you know, Shabbos observance, Shabbos observance is. And it means, you know, you, you can't turn on a light switch, you can't cook food, and you certainly can't like, come to down an electric microphone and playing an electric guitar. So, um, so it was, a, it was a problem. And for some reason, after I made my album, I released my first single, not a lot was happening. And my label put it down to the fact that I wasn't doing shows on Friday night. Mm-hmm. I then got offered a tour, and during Passover 2011 with Adele, but it was over Passover, which was, you know, a week of, you know, something very similar to Sabbath, to the Shabbat. Mm-hmm. So I had to turn down this tour, and then they thought I was crazy. Then I turned down eventually, later in the year, another concert that was on another religious festival, um, to the BBC in the UK. And after that, my record label were like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> we are done. And they dropped me. They fired me. But literally, like two months after I got dropped um, from Ireland, um, a single got used for a, for, a, for a commercial spot for Mike Stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that song went on to sell just under 6 million copies worldwide. The song Too Close. <laughs> so, the, the song Too Close, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. And then, I, then obviously a bidding war ensued between my original record label and a bunch of other record labels. And um, it all became clear what I had to get. had to go through that getting dropped and then re-signed. And, you know, it was good. And um, I had my fellow record labels and now I'm kind of on my own. Um, you know, which has its pluses and its minuses. It means artistically, creatively, you have complete control, but you don't necessarily have the same logistical, you know, monstrous superstructure mm. that you have with a major label. Right. Well, I think that's where people are going these days, too. I think a lot of artists are really going that way anyway. The weather is getting warmer. I'm so excited. And it is time to say goodbye to all those jackets and sweaters and hello to the shorts and T-shirts. I wanted to update my summer workout wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince and I am in love. Quince is your go-to place from everything from premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless, 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part of all, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Okay, I bought the dreamiest pair of workout leggings and a bright pink workout top to match. Honestly, ladies, I gotta tell you, these leggings you need. The price cannot be beat, and I feel like a million bucks wearing this cozy workout friendly outfit. I've worn it for like five days straight. 
Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash etm for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash etm to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash etm. Okay, friend, I want to know, what are your money goals this year? Are you saving to buy a house or maybe a wedding or a dream vacation to somewhere tropical? If that's you, please, please take me with you. Or maybe you want to just grow your emergency fund because let's be real, life is expensive. I want to make sure you reach your goals. So you need Monarch. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all in one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress towards your financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com etm. Here's what I love. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can go between light and dark mode. You can create custom budgets and notifications. You can set up all of these automatic rules for your transactions and notifications and so much more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving their product. Get this. They release updates every two weeks and they even allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. This, my friend, is totally original. Plus, they will never sell your data to third party or show you ads. I think that's really important. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it is the top-rated personal finance app. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise, and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied, or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. We talk about this often on the podcast, but you don't realize how much of your information is available to scammers on the internet and how susceptible you and your family are to identity theft and fraud. I know, it's scary, but now you can get your data removed with Delete Me. That's why I personally choose Delete Me. Delete.me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. I just started using Delete.me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. (laughs) I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. You sign up and provide Delete.me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. I cannot tell you how relieved I felt to have Delete.me. And you know, it's also a great service for your parents or grandparents to help protect them from identity theft. Delete.me is not just a one-time service. Delete.me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you do not want on the internet. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special price for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and use promo code etm at checkout. The only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com 
slash ETM and enter code ETM at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash ETM. Go to joindeleteme.com slash ETM and use code ETM for 20% off. Talking about money is hard. You know this already. All over the world, people are taught to never talk about money, politics, sex, or religion in polite company. On 50 Fires, a podcast about money and meeting from executive producers Chip and Joanna Gaines, host and financial conversationalist Carl Richards will remove money from that list by having frank, funny, and often difficult conversations about money, the kind we're all told not to have, with guests from all walks of life. In each episode, Carl will invite a new guest to answer the question, what does money mean to you? Their answers will reveal much more than their attitudes about money, spanning revelations about identity, community, faith, family, and the true meaning of wealth. Tune in to hear deep conversations about money and the meaning it holds in our lives. You can find 50 Fires on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Sure. Sure, it is more common. And, um, you know, the, the expenditure that record labels are spending on making records and, do, and you know, doing promo, that, those days are done, unless you're like, you know, some superstar. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to, you know, make a living and do it on your own. Um, right. Yeah. Right. So, so like when you you go out on the road or you you see fans and stuff like that. I mean, there's there's sort of a structure you kind of have to follow, right? As far as as far as like the cal- you know, the days of the week, and then also there's certain things as an Orthodox Jew you don't you don't touch other females, and and is that has that become a problem? Yeah, like sure. I mean, fans or I mean uh, it's not a problem. No, it's actually yeah. you know when you explain why, and explain that I only have physical contact with my wife, like um. Usually, very smooth. I wish my boyfriend was like that. You know, um, usually, <laughs> you get some people who think, um, yeah. you know, it's misogynistic or something, and it's not. It's the exact opposite. Um, it's acknowledging the difference between a man and a woman, and acknowledging the, you know, the power of, you know, of, of a feeling a man can have for a woman, and trying to direct it just towards one woman, and that woman being my wife. Um, so, as, as, a, as a religious constraint, we don't have physical contact with, you know, people who aren't the same gender as us with, with, with women. Um, so yeah, I mean, it can, it sometimes times a few heads, and I've had to explain it to people many times. But hopefully, they don't get offended. Um, but when you explain why, usually people are pretty cool, and they like to they respect it. Yeah. Right. I mean, it probably right. would be easier to just tell people that I'm like OCD and that you know my massive <laughs> or whatever. Like, it would right. be easier, but it wouldn't be the truth. So, right. 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 Or, or one of those. Yeah, one of those crazy artists that don't look me in the face, kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. <laughs> what, 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 what is different? What, yeah, what, no, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. It's fine. I'm listening. I'm listening. What, what, what did you kind of um, learn from your experience uh, with the Microsoft uh, on the commercial with uh, Too Close? What did you kind of learn from that? I mean, you know, from there, you've kind of, you, you, you moved to Israel. You're doing your own thing. You, you're recording and doing your own thing. What have you kind of learned in the business side uh, of things? And, and how does that tra- translate into your music today? In the, in the business side of things, good question. You know, I've been through the mill. I've been making music um, as working in the studios and as a songwriter and as an artist in my own life for, you know, over, well, 11 or 12 years now, mm-hmm. which is crazy. I can't quite believe that. <laughs> but it's, um, you know, I've seen all the faces of the music industry, and uh, some of them are really nice and some of them are, are not so pleasant. You know, there's a lot of sick fancy and a lot of uh, nepotism. 
And, um, you know, those things are great if you're like the golden boy. You see the other side of it. Um, but that's, I think that's any industry, really. I don't think that's exclusive to the music industry. I think that's just the, you know, the, the, the pursuit of money, which you know, has to be done. Um, but yeah, people forget that musicians are artists, and artists are people, and people are sensitive emotionally, and, you know, spiritually, and physically um, to how other people feel or view them. Um, so you get a very thick skin in the music industry. You have to develop a slight immunity to either criticism or other people's opinion if you're going to, you know, make music that you love. You've got to accept that not everyone's always going to be happy with it all the time. And if you choose a certain lifestyle and direction, also people aren't going to be happy with it all the time. But um, that's okay. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I, you know, I, re- I listened to your, to your uh, last album that just came out um, this past year, uh, Tale of Lions, and I really love it. I, I've listened to it several times. And you have a, a lot of themes on there from, like, uh, your faith yeah. uh, to marriage and mental illness. Uh, can you talk about you know sure. what, what you how you kind of came up with these songs, these collection of songs? You know, when I write a song, I kind of just um, it has to come from life experience. I don't sit in a studio with a bunch of songwriters. I try and like write my story out and write the story of the people I, I love and who I'm you know near to. And I mean that's I uh, that's my world, and that's what influences me creatively. I'm not an abstract thinker. Um, I don't try and be, you know, pretentious. <laughs> I just want to write something that I hope someone can relate to, or at least I can relate to. And, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, therefore, all the themes on the album tend to be, you know, autobiographical or, or, or focused on, on the world around me, and, you know, in my opinions. Um, right. But, yeah, the mental illness thing is interesting. That was... Um, I was hanging out with this with a friend of mine who was having serious problems and still, you know, sadly has massive problems and we're trying to sort of mm. get through them um, with him. But, uh, you know, it's had so many challenges for him. And to see it as a friend and to see, um, you know, how people respond to somebody who is having a mental breakdown, mm-hmm. um, another breakdown, it's um, it's fascinating and a little bit heartbreaking, and it's uh, it's just interesting to see you know people who can develop a sense of empathy and compassion and those who can't, and um, yeah, 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 it's fascinating, and um, I felt like I had to write a song about it because it was just you know it was on my mind a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, you know what he was going to. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think that's important too. Mental illness is a you know thing that we don't always talk about in the world in general. I mean, look at you know, there was two rock stars in the last few months that, that you know, unfortunately, you know, took their lives because yeah. of, of problems that they've had too. So, you know, I think that's really sure. important. But also, I guess you also have an interesting story how you recorded it. You recorded this on a boat on on the river. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My first album as well. I wrote most of Atlantis of the Hour on a boat oh, on the okay. same river, a different boat, but okay. on the same river. Okay. You know, London has a lot of waterways. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of waterways and whenever I go to London I have a lot of friends who live on boats and um, I spend a lot of my childhood hanging out on boats and there's an environment I really like you know the only the only drawback I live in the least is that there's not so much water <laughs> not so many boats um, I really miss I really miss hanging out on rivers and lakes a lot. <laughs> right. and uh, you know accommodation in London is expensive um, but I lived in a boat myself for a while and my, my good friend and colleague, Chris Hargreaves, um, he moved onto the boat about two years ago. And when we were writing the album, we started writing on the boat and we realized that we could basically record almost everything on the boat. The, um, 
strings, horns, and drums for Tricky to do. We had to do that in the studio. But the writing and production and vocaling were pretty much all done on a, on a narrow boat on the river in East London. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of cool. What, what the... Pretty cool. And it's... Uh, no, go ahead, go ahead. It's, it's pretty cool, yeah. It's, it's interesting, and it's... Um, People don't realise that in most big European cities there are you know miles and miles and miles of waterways and people living on them. There's like a whole uh, subculture that's old. Uh-huh. You know, people have been living yeah. on boats in London for hundreds of years. And, right. Um, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I just I actually saw a travel story about that. That that uh, there's so many people, even more so these days, living on boats in London because it's so priced out these days. Oh yeah. Exactly. And uh, you know it's like a real roving nomadic lifestyle because get a mooring to actually like pegged up somewhere mm-hmm. it's expensive mm-hmm. so people just move you know every every few weeks then right. moving half a mile or so up or down river right and exactly lovely exactly what were what were you what music did you kind of gravitate towards as a young guy um uh in the 90s in london that that kind of really propelled you to into into music wow so i think the first influences were uh it was very broad you know, I actually I grew up more in the early 2000s. I was uh, 14 in the year 2000. Yeah. So I think in the, just between then, I mean, as as a kid, there was a lot of like blues and soul in my house. My mom had like every blues and soul compilation there was, and a couple of Marvin Gaye albums, but a lot of cassettes. You know, so you had to get these cassettes in gas stations with like, mm-hmm. you know, Etta James and you know, Marvin mm-hmm. and Otis and Donny Hathaway. And then my dad, um, my dad was born in 1936, so um, he has a big collection, and he took me to a lot of jazz concerts when I was a kid. Um, you know, he saw a lot of people from his from his heyday. Mm-hmm. So that was always an influence. I think vocally, it was generally like American folk music that kind of that kind of popped through. But I grew up in London in a time when, you know, in, and in a neighbourhood where you know David Bowie comes from. Um, Susie and the Banshees came from. There was a, a, a very interesting musical thing going on in South East London where I grew up. Um, mostly because it's the most boring part of London, and therefore like, the people who come out of there are usually a little bit left field and very creative because they have nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> also, you know, UK Garage, UK Garage, which is like uh, electronic music, EDM, mm-hmm. Drum and bass, dubstep, jungle, these are all in the musical background. Mm-hmm. And even like, uh, you know, like hardcore heavy metal and like punk rock, very, very diverse. Um, but the things that really struck me vocally was soul music mm-hmm. and, you know, the writing of like Leonard Cohen. And then listening, having this sort of drum and bass, UK garage, dubstep in the background growing up, um, that definitely had an influence on how I wanted to try and combine these different genres together mm-hmm. if I could. Um, you know, so that's something I always try to marry together classic singer-songwriting or just, I'm not going to call it classic because that sounds crazy pretentious. But <laughs> it's just, you know, <laughs> singer-songwriting, singer-songwriter over, over electronic music is, um, you know, Portishead was massive, Radiohead was massive in uh, my soundtrack as a kid. Right. Um, yeah, the prodigy also was uh, mm-hmm. was always always the Fuji. These are all things that were like going on in the background. Sure. Very very diverse. I'm also I'm the youngest of seven kids, so like um, between all my older siblings, I had all their record collections, everything they were listening to, everything they were playing in the house. Um, you know, the, the ones immediately up for me were very into like Britpop, 
And um, then the one above that was into like the Carpenters and Carol King. <laughs> So, so, and then it went all the way back into the sort of seventies and eighties. So um, you know, it's like like Sabbath and Zeppelin, very very diverse musical background. Right. And um, yeah, yeah, I'm very I'm blessed. I'm very blessed right. to have uh, you know right. parents and siblings who span many many generations. <laughs> Well, you also have a string of dates coming up. Uh, you're going to be playing in the in the, in the U.S. and in Canada. Uh, yeah. How how's how's the reception when you've kind of um, uh, taken this album out on the road? Uh, how's the reception to these new collection of songs? Europe has been amazing. You know, the, the festivals we've just been basically doing European festivals this summer, and uh, we did obviously uh, Germany, Central Europe, and Russia earlier in the year. But we haven't really done any shows in the U.S. yet, so um, we'll see how it, we'll see how it goes. But so far, so good in Europe. Good response for the fans. So uh hope he makes some new ones and gets the music out to uh some old ones as well. That's awesome. Well I have one last one last question for you. So I was I was reading that you were a chef and you really like to cook. Yeah. Uh, have you mastered yeah. the art the have you mastered the art of fine uh Israeli cooking yet? Sure. It's not so hard. <laughs> <laughs> the trick is lots of tiny, tiny tasty salads. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> loads of eggplant, loads of hummus, uh-huh. and um, lots of fresh fish, lots of, uh, you know, lots of chicken, not so much red meat. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty good. We, a lot of this, obviously, we live in Israel, so <laughs> we live on what you call Israeli food. Right, um, right. Again, Israel is, a, is what people don't realize is that Israel is a huge cultural melting pot. We have Jews from every corner of the world, whether they're from Yemen, whether they're from northern China, whether that's in Northern India, whether that's from, you know, New York. You know, the, the Jewish diaspora is massive. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have, um, you know, culinary influences in Israel from everywhere. You get, like, a very traditional thing, like, gefilte fish or chicken soup with a big, like, tablespoon of very spicy, like, skug from Yemen, you know. Right. So, uh, so it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, it's a very interesting gastronomic background to being Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a very special place. Awesome. Yeah, a lot of falafel. Oh, falafel is the best. But it's got to be fresh and it's got to be good. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure they're probably good there. Yeah. Oh yeah, falafel's pretty good. <laughs> there's different spots. There's like uh, there's different spots. There's also something called sabish, which is like sabish is like a a, a relative of the falafel bean. It comes in okay. a pepper and it has tahina and hummus and it has amber, like a, like a mango, um, mm-hmm. like a spicy mango like okay. salad in it, yeah. but Sabbath is very simple. It's just deep fried eggplant, chopped eggs, and hummus. But it's all about how you put the salads in there afterwards. And that is like, uh, that is something, weirdly, it's like a real street food. It's the only thing I get excited about when I have a good Sabbath in Jerusalem, I'm like, uh, I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's awesome. Well, thanks so much, uh, Alex, for joining us from from Israel. Um, Thank you so um, much. We can't wait to see you in the States here, and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, awesome. I know you battle not giving off an 